1: And welcome to The Tonight Show. Redmond and Geraldine Murphy, the parents of Sligo footballer Red Oak Murphy, speak to Kira Doherty as the first anniversary of their son's death approaches. The economy is set to grow more strongly this year than had been expected and may even overheat. That's according to the latest research from the ESRI. And later, the fastest Paralympian on the planet, Jason Smith, will join me here in studio to discuss his decision to retire. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV.com. of Red Oak Murphy, a talented young Sligo footballer who died last year, are urging young people to seek help if they're experiencing challenges and difficulties with their mental health. The much-loved trainee teacher was known as a champion sportsman. Red Oak died by suicide at the age of 21 in April of last year. And his parents, Geraldine and Redmond Murphy, have spoken to Kira Doherty about the past year without their beloved son, as his first anniversary approaches. And a note that some viewers may find this report upsetting.
2: Um, it's almost a year, almost the first anniversary of Red Oak's death. How are you doing at this point, Geraldine?
3: We're doing well. We are, um, I mean, people say coming up at the first anniversary, that it'll be harder. I suppose it is a little bit, but it's one day to the next is what we take it. We, we have good people and that keeps us strong along with which we feel we get strength from Red Oak as well to keep going. But we're doing well. As a family,
2: we're doing well. Do you think Oshin and I, his two brothers, have very much taken their lead from you?
3: Yes, I think if they see us being positive about it and that... Um, you that know, there's no point in looking back on what has happened. Uh, Red Oak certainly wouldn't want us to be all doom and gloom and he would prefer us to just, you know, get on with it and, you know, leave us maybe put the message out there what we're trying to do, that, you know, that there is people out there to help, you know, if you feel down or in a dark place, but that there um, are professionals out there to give you help and to help you. And I think the boys see that, that we are out there to put that message across.
2: I think some people watching Redmond will wonder how parents who have gone through you know, a worse nightmare for a lot of parents to have to bury your, your beloved child can get to that point where you say, we're doing good, we're strong. How have you processed it? How have you got to this point?
4: Well, for us, both Ger and I and the lads, we kind of celebrate his life in what he achieved because it's in, it's in photographs and medals all around the house so for us that's the piece we look at all the positives like we were lucky to have him because Geraldine had awful problems with pregnancy at the very start and you know it was a bit of a miracle that he was born in the first place so you know to have him for 21 years and, and, to, and to have such a life with him was is, is the big positive like that's that's and that's what we focus on you know you can think about the negative there's no, uh, how would you say, purpose to it. There's no, you know, relief, comfort, or Anthony, you know. But we still think we have a family of five. We have a family of five. Just Og is in a different, he's in a spiritual form with us, but he's, he's with us every day.
3: We don't dwell on, like, that, like or be angry that he's gone, because uh, we just feel that he, he had accomplished so much and that he lived his life to the
2: full. The one thing I really noticed when I look at all the photographs was that he's smiling in so many of them. I mean, outwardly, he really does come across as a happy person.
3: Oh, yeah. Every place he went, right, he just... He spoke with everybody. It didn't matter who they were. He conversed with everybody. And everybody, they loved him, because he just had a, t- a word for everybody.
4: Red Oak would always wear his heart on his sleeve. No matter what was happening, you'd know it and he talked to you about it. So we, we always... I suppose there was a comfort there that... He'd always talk to us if there was something wrong. We'd never suspect anything otherwise, you know.
2: He, he was a perfectionist, wasn't he? He had high standards of himself. Yeah, but
3: and but he put that pressure on himself to be perfect. And like we would have many a conversation and I'd say to him oh, Everything in life isn't perfect, you know. You will have your knocks and your downs, but like he would keep going until he would get it right. That was where he, he was very strong with that. He would have to keep going until he got it right. And that was with anything that he touched. Like it had to be
2: right. Do you think, Redmond, he put himself under undue pressure at times?
4: He did. Um, he, I suppose there was, a, there was a lack of confidence there, even in his Gaelic football, that he was quite good at. You know, he, had, he was definitely talented. I
2: think he was more than quite good, wasn't he? I think you're being modest there. <laughs> From everything I've read, he was very good.
4: He, he would have been... Uh, and it, in the times, like, the conversations he would have with his mother and I, like we talked after every match because it was kind of a general conversation, so... We'd, he'd talk about, I'm not going to make the DCU second year team. And we'd say, Yeah, of course you're going to make it. You know, I was at the match tonight and they looked very good and I wasn't playing. And then it was the senior team and I won't make the senior team. He, he never he knew he had ability, but he didn't have the confidence to go with it.
3: I think a lot of people are hard in themselves. A lot of young people are so hard in themselves. But, like, if they kindness begins at home and they have to be kind to themselves and not be put so much pressure on oneself as they do.
2: Um, since his passing, has anybody come to you, Geraldine, as his mother and said, you know, he did say to me that he was feeling down in himself or he wasn't in a good place or that he'd expressed those types of feelings to other people, perhaps, that you weren't aware of?
3: No, it's actually the opposite. People come and they say, like, we didn't see anything. Like, he seemed to be in good form, but, like, none of his friends, none of the, like, the people in college, the lecturers, no Nobody's, nobody's done anything. Because
2: one of the things I suppose we will have heard over the years from parents who have lost children by suicide is, you know, have that conversation, have an open relationship, make sure there's nothing that's out of bounds in terms of conversation. But you very much feel you've had that, Geraldine.
3: Yeah, we had. We had, um, like, both of us would have had that um, good relationship with him. And, yeah, and I mean, in comparison to the other two, he would he would tell everything. Like well, the other two, mightn't tell as much as Red Oak, but he'd tell you everything that was going on. So yeah, so I mean, it's it's just like it's, it's unbelievable that he that it happened because, as I said, he had everything. Everything was going from everything was going so good from, and then just bang, gone, and no note, no,
2: and no way for you to find out what he was feeling,
3: no, no nothing, nothing.
2: And do you ponder over that?
3: No, I just had this belief that his time was up, and that we had him for 21 years, and that, like he achieved so much in that 21 years, that another one wouldn't, you know, do in a lifetime. And um, yeah, so I just feel that he was, and he was gifted to us, and we were blessed to have him.
4: On Jurlin's birthday the previous year, we travelled to Thurles for a, a, a practice game to, to watch him play and watch DCU play Tipperary. We, for all three lads, we've been with them every step of the way. So, you know, it it helped our guilt, the fact that, you know, we might have missed something and uh, that we didn't, you know, weren't good parents, but we were always with them. We talked to them every day.
3: But there's no answer. We don't have an answer. We don't have, only that we think it was something that just went in his mind. You know, like it was a doctor actually that described it one night in our house after he passed and said that you know, he said the only way to describe uh, a suicide is that he said it's a heart attack of the mind and it is the best way that you can describe it.
2: How are the wider GA community now? Because I know they were utterly devastated at his passing.
4: They're, I suppose, still coping is the answer because um, for young kids growing up he was a bit of a you know a superstar and, and the, the, that element of it and then the players, his comrades and his teammates again across the ECU, across the club, across the county, you know, they're still struggling a little bit or struggling with that. Um, I suppose, here the big point is that for not the warning signs, we're here tonight because you know somewhere along the line he had he had some form of you know stress or or whatever, and he 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 there was something happening for sure in his mind, but he wasn't able to share it but i what we're saying what we've been saying is that once the early signs even the early signs are something that's not right, you know talk to a friend. Like, the, all the agencies are very anonymous. Like, you just pick up the phone and ring them. And they're so good, like, on the other side. So they'll, they'll understand. And during the week, I was reading an article, and it's very nice to see where, you know, kids and, and adults and um, have been and have got the, 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 the proper counselling, that they've come the, come out the other side, and, and they're, they're good again for it, like, and, and life goes on. So it, it's important that... For the early signs, if there are early signs, is that if you're any stressed like that, talk to your friend, you know, talk to the agencies. That's the message Gerald and I want want everybody to hear. That, you know, even if there's a simple sign of something not right, talk to somebody.
2: Don't keep it to yourself. You, I'm sure, believe, Geraldine, that if he had spoken to somebody. If he'd confided in you or Redmond or one of his brothers or friends or GA community, there were so many people that he could have turned to that he would have gotten help and that you wouldn't be in this position today.
3: Yeah, Yeah, and that's what we wish for other people, that they wouldn't be in our position and that it's important that if they see a sign at all, just to, you know, to contact or talk, talk to somebody, as Redmond said, just to talk to somebody, um, because it is important. And they they would save themselves.
2: Do you have any understanding, Redmond, why Redo didn't reach out, why he didn't seek that help?
4: I would have thought that, like I speak of, the, that the early signs were there, but he didn't see the... the he didn't, wasn't concerned and then probably reached a point of no return where he, where he he was in a very dark place that there was no going back, even if it's only for a small, brief time that... that that particular moment, that particular night, it all got too much and he couldn't see a way back or a way out. All I can say is that we were, you know, you'd hope that they'd, 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 that he'd have recognised that or realised that before the point of no return because on the night he committed suicide there was a point of no return where he took his own life because he felt, I'm sure, that he couldn't go on. So it's collecting, you know, any early warning signs at all, to avoid that.
3: That is very true, yeah. That is true. Like, I mean, he wouldn't do anything to hurt me, or the rest of them, especially me. So, like, if he... he well, he wouldn't have... No. No. And, so, and you wouldn't want other families to go through this. You know? I mean, OK, we have a brave face on and... But, you know, there are days that aren't good, but we're entitled to them. Yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. I don't think anybody would deny that it was Geraldine at all. Um, I think you're very brave to come forward and to speak. Well,
3: we just feel it's important. Yeah.
2: Is this now what you want Red Oak's legacy to be?
3: Yeah, I feel like that it, we both feel that he's gone, but that we have to carry on work for him, that he's up there, but we're working for him down here. And that we would like, you know, people just to, just to talk.
4: Like for us, we've said, it, we've said it quite openly that he's, he's, like, we're in our late, we're in our 50s, you know, and he, he was 21. So and, on life's journey, he's ahead of us now, waiting for us to come to him, you know. And, and um, there's a lovely prayer I've seen during the week or a, a poem or a reflection that talks about, you know, I'm waiting at the other side. Even on his grave, this, the gravestone is up this week, it says, see you at the fair post, you know. So our belief is that he's just on the road ahead of us. But he's with us every day. We, we believe that. Like, and that's give a lot of the strength. It gives us the strength. We don't want to understand too much why. We just need to get on with life and be good to each other and, and uh, you know.
2: And to ask young people to not to suffer in silence, to get help. Yeah. That's the ultimate message here, isn't it?
4: That's the ultimate message in, in any way, shape or form, you know. That's just, it's that period in time. That where it's at its worst, that that help is needed just before that point.
2: All right, Julian Redmond, thank you very much. Thank you very much for speaking to us this evening. I really appreciate it.
1: That's Geraldine and Redmond Murphy speaking to Kira Doherty in Sligo. And if you've been affected by any of the issues in this report, you can find help by clicking on samaritans.org online or you can talk to somebody now by phoning 116 123 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I'm joined now by Senior Clinical Psychologist and President of the Psychological Society of Ireland, Dr Anne Keogh. Um, Thank you, Dr Keogh, for joining us in studio tonight. Um, we heard there so eloquently from Geraldine and Redmond Murphy about the loss of their beautiful son. And will we'll soon be the first anniversary of his death. But I do think this will resonate with many people who have been bereaved through suicide. Uh, they, they did not see anything coming. They don't have the answers. They don't know why it happened and how it came to that devastating point um, for them, there was no warning signs and there is no explanation. Is this all too common?
5: Well, I mean, the statistics in Ireland for, I suppose, 2019 would indicate that 524 people took their lives. That is wholly unacceptable. It's not fair on anyone. No one should have to reach that point where they feel they need to do that. Um, so it's, it's sadly too common. I mean, for, under, for males under 25, it's the number one cause of death at the moment in the, statistics, in the statistics that we have. So I think all of our hearts are with Geraldine and Redmond and they're so brave to tell their story about Red Oak and to give us space and to have the conversation what it's like to be a parent of a young person where this has happened or even other parents who are worried about their young people. So yes, it's far too common.
1: Um, and we heard from Geraldine there when she said, a lot of young people are really hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they put an awful lot of pressure on themselves. And is this increasingly something you're seeing in your line of work? You worked in CAMS and you worked in, in other areas. You've worked at the coalface.
5: Indeed. So I think... There is sometimes an idea that young people should just be able to get on with everything, but the pressure nowadays to be the best at your schoolwork, to be the best at your sport, to be on all the time on social media, to be on for your friends, to present well and in a good mood all the time, it, it really is there. So I think it's really important that Geraldine and Redmond are talking about, and they, they they say beautiful things to young people listening about making that time to talk to somebody, find that one person who will listen.
1: Um. And you're on with us tonight because Mm -hmm. what was really important um, um, for Geraldine and Redmond was that they wanted to send a message for people who are feeling under pressure, who are suffering internally, um, who may feel this way, the way they feel Red Oak felt, um, to talk to a friend and Mm -hmm. to reach out for help. So for someone in that dark place, uh, what advice do you have? How do you give advice at that time that, as Redmond was referring to, you know, a point that there's no way back, they felt there was no return?
5: Mm -hmm. I think... To, to the person trying to make space, so, so you're trying to encourage a young person or a friend or family member to talk to you, the most important thing is to actually acknowledge that that's what you're doing. That right then in that moment, the most important thing you can do is hear them. You may not be able to fix it immediately, you might might not be able to take it away, but that you are present with somebody who's giving you that message, maybe that they feel really distressed, that they feel they can't go on. And there are all sorts of different levels to that. It's, it's common enough people can have a thought that they just, don't want to be here, it can't go on. It's a very different level to get to the stage where you maybe have a plan or an action around that, maybe a note written or something like that, that's different. But the, what your question, uh, Claire, around, it's really about the person taking in the information. It's okay just to be with that person. The most important moment is that moment when they're starting to tell you something. And we all get very afraid about this topic, which is why it's so good to talk about it. A feeling is a feeling and whether, you, you know, if you have it, it's best to share it. So making that space, realising that you maybe can't fix it immediately, but giving them room is the most important thing you can do.
1: And um, for the person who is in that situation, Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that idea that there is an inability to share these thoughts and an inability to say to your loved ones, uh, you know, how you're feeling or a friend or even a stranger, how you're feeling about something. how, how, I suppose, do they break out that stigma or they
5: break out that cycle that can become so utterly devastating? The thing I'd say to them is if someone came to them, how would they receive that news? So so I think everybody wants to make room for this. And no matter what you feel, no matter how much of a burden you may think you might be, no matter how devastating you know this news the news that you feel this bad might be to someone else, it is always okay to talk about it. There should always be somebody for, some, for someone that's willing to listen and, and hear you. And that could be your parents, a friend, a coach. It could be a stranger. It could be um, a teacher someone in college, anywhere. It could be your GP and you have that confidentiality around it. Or it could be, you know, presenting to hospital if you feel you're worried in that sense to yourself. Basically, the message to them is, The space that they would give someone else is what they they will receive when they start to talk about it. So it's talk about it, have these conversations. Sadly, these thoughts are not unusual, they happen. So we have to have a way to have that conversation and and put that out there. So take your chance. People are very happy and willing to listen. I won't say happy, they're very willing to make time. They know how important this is. We're all too easy in Ireland to say, how are you, I'm fine or I'm grand, but actually, if you're not okay, start the start kind of hinting around that. And then if, if you're looking after somebody and you're worried they're not okay, ask them. Say really gently, I'm worried about you. You know, you, you haven't been spending much time with this or you're skipping meals or whatever. Should I be worried? It's okay to express a little bit. You won't cause somebody to harm themselves or trying to take their life by asking about it. It's the opposite. It actually makes it okay. It makes space to feel that bad. And then they can have When you're not on your own with that, just loads of hope. Okay. Dr.
1: Anne Kyo, Senior Clinical Psychologist, thank you so much for joining us on the programme tonight. And as I say, if you are affected by any of the issues raised here, please remember that you are not alone and you can find help by clicking on samaritans.org online or you can talk to somebody right now by phoning one one six one two three 123 at 24 hours a day seven days a week and we want to thank Geraldine and Redmond Murphy for speaking to us about their beloved son Red Oak lots more after the break do stay with us
6: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care
1: Welcome back. The government has defeated a Sinn Féin bill seeking to extend the eviction ban until January of 2024 by a majority of 81 votes to 67 in the Dáil. Well, the vote was triggered by the Labour Party tabling, a no-confidence motion in the government over its decision to lift the eviction ban uh, on Saturday. For more on this now, I'm joined by The Currency's finance correspondent, Sean Keyes, Sinn Féin Senator Lynne Boylan and Fine Gael Senator Garrett O'Hearn. First, uh, let's take a look at some of the exchanges in the doll earlier.
7: When asked how that number was arrived at, or how it was realised, the leader of the Labour Party had no answers. When pressed... When pressed, she took a page straight out of the book of Sinn Féin.
2: You've spent more time lambasting Labour than you have setting out what you say government has achieved on housing. And yet you're accusing us in opposition of politicising housing? And that, for me, sums up the problem with your government. How can anybody have confidence in a Taoiseach that cannot answer the straightforward question, where are people meant to go?
0: Deputy Macdonald asks, what planet are we on? One that's on fire and you have no solutions for it. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Deputy Kearns is obsessed with the Green Party. No wonder it's where she gets her ideas and policies from.
7: Extending the ban isn't necessarily going to solve this crisis into the future. It's like making sweets free for children. It's fine for a little while but ultimately detrimental to their greater need.
1: Okay, so it really kicked off in the doll today. Um, it all went down, and here to get a bit of reaction to this. And um, we're joined, as I say, by uh, Sinn Fein Senator Lynn Boylan and also by Garrett Ahern, Gale, a Fine Gael Senator. But I want to come to you first on this, um, Lynn. And I guess what Sinn Fein were trying to do tonight was to push through the government's own legislation and use it to extend the eviction ban. Tonight, that, that did fail. Is there now an acceptance, albeit a frustrating one, I suppose on Sinn Féin's part, at a political level that there is no going back now on this decision?
8: Well, my sympathy goes out to the people who are at home who have gotten eviction notices after what happened today in the door and the politicking that went on from the government members um, about the vote. I think that we always have to focus on there are real people behind every single one of those eviction notices and the government have decided to literally just whip the rogue from underneath them and to take away all safety nets. Interestingly Dublin City Council tonight did vote in favour of a motion to extend the eviction ban and the government parties could only find eight councillors to actually vote against that motion. So Dublin City Council have shown more leadership than the government parties in the Dáil have. Yeah, but at all, I mean, the accusation is there is all these political shenanigans
1: don't really help the cause of people who, as you say, will be receiving eviction notices um, and will now be facing into that uncertainty. Um, All the mudslinging right across the door helps no one.
8: Well, I think that the, the people are angry. I mean, the politicians on the opposition side are incredibly angry because the government, Vinnie Gale, have been in government for thir- almost 13 years at this point. And every single metric on housing has gotten worse uh, under there. And they'll turn around as if they, you know, wipe the slate clean. We've had an election in January. They've been there for almost 13 years. Okay.
1: And we do continuously hear this, um, we hear this 13 years played over and over again now, Gerrit O'Hearn. There was never a question that the government really wouldn't win these these votes today um, on the motion of confidence, because you got the independents to support you. You also had Nasa Harrigan, who, despite her stance on the eviction ban, did vote with government and Joe McHugh. But the fact remains that we will be hearing stories, we will be hearing about the impact of this decision uh, in the days to come, in the weeks to come. And, that won't go away for this government.
0: No, no. And I think what we've seen today and, and last week as well, that what we have is a strong government and a government that has a strong majority, actually. Uh, well, a government that's been... also
1: relying on the independents to bolster well, their support that, no, that's and not true because even without,
0: being given there. That's not true, because even without the independent support, we would have won the vote today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this shows that this is a government that, that's built to last, that has two more years uh, and I think it's important to say that if the vote or, didn't win... Or
1: a government, or government under severe pressure.
0: No, I don't think so. I think we won by strong numbers tonight. There was right, a strong conviction so, by most people who I spoke. Mean, but I, it's I important th- to say what would happen no, if it didn't no. go through, tonight, uh, through today. What would happen is the, the door would have been dissolved. There'd be a general election for the next month. There'd be months, weeks or months of negotiations between parties to form a new government. We'd be well into the summer. And while all of that is happening, the eviction moratorium would have lapsed anyway. So it goes to the essence of what Labour's motion was. It wasn't to actually save the eviction ban. It was to compete with other people in opposition and on the left about who's more outraged about the situation.
8: It's not about who's more outraged. We're representing real people, real families, children. I mean, homelessness has gone up 56% since Fine Gael have been in government. That's the reality. Children are going to be made homeless by the decision that your party have taken in government. And you have to own that decision because we are going to see families still, still. we can't all answer. made that decision. But you, st- you made, we, we we, didn't make that yes decision. Yes, you did. We all voted for the,
0: for the eviction moratorium to end at no, the end of this month. We, we all Sinn Fein voted for that. The whole the whole doll voted for that. We're not the ones who changed, it's the opposition. We've changed on that. But
1: wasn't, there a view we brought, and wasn't there a discussion on its absolutely. reason why the coalition no, no, party leaders was, met to discuss uh, the future of Whether that we eviction, would continue yeah, it or and, and not. Whether you would but, continue but, it But, the, but there so was a
0: decision made before Christmas where all parties, including Sinn Fein, agreed that the moratorium would end Provided on the, on the that 31st the of March. the government would
8: put in place the emergency which, measures which Claire, we this have. Which is really, really we important. We have 6,000 houses. We in have always said the eviction ban is not the solution to fixing the housing crisis we know that what it does is it gives breathing space it provides a safety net for families so that the government can then get their act together and put in place And the emergency. Lynn, briefly just...
1: on that briefly yeah. on that like some would say it's easy from the opposition benches to put out that date now that you you put out of January 2024 knowing it's something in opposition, you'd never have to follow through on. You'd never have to be in that situation next January of lifting, of but lifting what we the ban did in, in, in the bleak midwinter.
8: But what we did in October was we wrote to Minister Daryl O'Brien and we outlined the number of measures he needed to take. He needed to make very, very clear to councils they needed to put aside the allocation system, the tenant in situ, the local authorities need the resources to be able to purchase the houses. Which is given. They need, The government also needs to use the emergency planning and and. Procurement measures that they introduced during COVID, the modular homes, all of these things. We wrote a detailed proposal in October when the eviction ban was coming in. We did it again two weeks before the eviction ban, w- the decision was to be taken. And Darrow Brown I, has not done that. And that's why that's, we're also. that's all so just frustrated. simply not
0: true. An awful lot of those have been done. 6,000 6, social houses have been built in that period, the moratorium the has just, been in place. The we've we've, 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 we've scaled up homes. the tenant in situ scheme. Um,
1: Garrett, yeah, okay, and we will get to some of those points because I just want to bring in the context around all of this and I'm also joined by Sean Keyes of The Currency because there were a couple of reports out today that I think were interesting, Sean, um, just in relation to what's going on in housing. First off, the ESRI, um, the economic think tank, if you like, says the government, or it says the economy, rather, is likely um, to grow more strongly than expected uh, this year. But with that comes a warning. Tell us more.
7: Yes, the ESRI um, has talked about overheating. I mean, I guess it's because, like, the first thing to say is the Irish economy is just amazingly resilient and strong. I mean, there's so many times, there's been so many setbacks and, like, where you, and, where you might expect it to come back more slowly. And what's happened this time, like other times, is the Irish economy is growing three times, four times faster than its peers around Europe. Right. And that's the overheating point. I mean, so
1: well, Could you explain um, what overheating is, um, the risk of it that the ESRI are talking about uh, and what's the potential impact of that overheating?
7: Well, uh, personally, I don't see overheating as a risk and I'll just explain why I think that is the case. So the ESRI mentioned it in, in, in their report. When economists talk about overheating, what they're sort of saying is that in an economy, um, wages will go up quickly, that will feed into prices, back into wages and the whole thing will will, will, t- will, will overheat in that way. And that's that's a very specific problem that is, not, Ireland isn't very susceptible to. We're not very susceptible to it because we are not like the United States, a big economy. We're a small, open economy. We import a lot, so the connection between wages and prices is actually is kind of weak in our country. Secondly, wages in Ireland are just not growing at that sort of danger zone level where you might worry about it feeding through the prices. They're growing at around three percent, which is roughly where economists would like them to be.
1: Okay. Uh, separately, they were talking about housing and the issue of supply and demand that are going to keep prices high. Mm. Um, But coupled with that, interest rates could stop people um, from buying. Yes. Um, is there a danger that that's likely to impact on house prices and, and again, in turn, I suppose, on rental uh, supply as well, because if people maybe want to buy a house, they can't afford to do so, they're staying in the rental market. Um, that's already really
7: stretched. Well, it's it's a continuation of the, the long story we've had for the last 10 years. They're saying, yes, we're going to build more houses, we'll be building more than we have, but just demand is growing so fast in this country. Population is growing Uh Families are growing and just that that demand that demand is swamping supply to the extent. So it, it, the way it shakes, the way they're forecasting it to shake out this year is that house prices will, house price growth will slow down but not fall.
1: Right. It's interesting, isn't it, Gareth? Because um, the SRI has said there is this continued demand for, for housing and actually they are going to revise upwards what needs to be built and what we need in terms of housing in this country. And yet we are building... What's the figure? Something like um, twenty-seven thousand homes. That's, that's the expected the figure on the report. Um, yeah. When I say we, I mean this is just this is nationwide by private and public interest or whatever. But twenty-seven thousand homes this year, down from thirty thousand last year. Why are we building fewer homes this year than we did last year when we we're in the middle? Well, of a well, no, crisis? that's part
0: of the, the report that they expect twenty-seven thousand houses. Was well, that year. not
1: on the? That's not well, on that's the on government the policy paper.
0: But we we have four thousand one hundred houses in in commencement already for January and February of this year, which is pretty much in line with what, which which was done last year, uh, which had thirty so thousand. So, are you saying you're going to the revise
1: year. the the home building upwards that we're expecting? Well, even if
0: you look at the RSI report, more than twenty-seven thousand even, even if you look at the RSI report, they expect uh, an up an upturn on twenty twenty-four in 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 the number of houses that are going to be built. But the demand is there, and and. That's not a surprise. We have an awful lot of people coming back into this country who were abroad uh, looking for houses. Um, but so- how
1: do you... I mean, surely, like, if you had that ambition to build more houses and to beat a target of 27,000, you'd be putting that out there, knowing what a desperate situation we'd be in.
0: Uh, but, but we are. like even, even if you look at my own county in Tipperary, we've targets that we've to hit in the Housing for All plan and we're, we're on, 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 on target with those and we're actually going to beat those targets by 2026. Oh, right. Very
1: confident um, there from Gareth O'Hearn about beating targets left, right and centre. Um, I mean, the CSO has shown the commencement is down
8: 20%. That's the CSO data has shown the commencements are down twenty percent, and yeah, it is interesting for, not, not for even January in the debate today that figure of the thirty thousand has been dropped now from the arguments because they know the commencements are down this year. This is C- why you cannot rely on, on, the on the same, they're the cannot, same January you, and February this late year late as they were last year. You can't rely on the private sector to deliver what we need in, in housing. We need the government to step in and to be directly delivering social and affordable housing, and that's how you take reduce that pressure in terms of the rental market because we're saying it's harder for people. To to get home loans now because of interest rates going up. That's why you need the state to be building the social and affordable and cost-rental homes and to revise their, their targets upwards because their targets so weren't, you're saying their more, targets weren't more, high enough in the first place. So p- more of
1: cost-rental and social and affordable housing... Um, do you think the government would be doing that, though, if they could, that they would want to do no, that? No,
8: because they have a fundamental ideological resistance to the public building the houses for people. They've been dragged kicking and screaming for years. They left the rental sector completely at the mercy of the private uh, market forces, and now they're reaping. The, what's happened because of that is the you know, private landlords are leaving. They should never have done that. They should never have walked away from the provision of housing in this state.
0: But what would you have done to protect land? In. What measures would you brought forward we to protect know, landlords we from leaving? Know,
8: we know that landlords oh, but are for leaving. for landlords in particular, Gareth, because... landlords have been leaving since 2017 yeah, and what you've would you have nothing. done to protect them? You've done nothing to protect them. Your party them. in the last two they, weeks
0: have said they will do nothing, Gareth, bring forward nothing Gareth, in a budget to protect Gareth, landlords. we like said it, we will. Whether
8: you like it or not, landlords have been leaving since 2017. The RTB independent research shows they're leaving for a number of reasons. They're cashing, of They're in the cashing government. in that... Stop with the stupid remarks now. The the reasons why they're leaving is property prices are at the peak, okay, for people who are in negative equity, people who bought the house uh, as a pension pot, who now have the right of course to cash in on that pension pot. They are leaving since 2017 and the primary reasons they're leaving for is because the property prices have gone up or they were an investment property that they were always going to sell When they reach their pension. Can I ask
1: you about that on those measures briefly? Because I kind of didn't want to get in deep into the landlord discussion. But just when you say, you know, what are are opposition doing about keeping landlords in the market? Arguably, um, this has been a knee jerk response from government now to offer tax breaks and offer incentives to landlords that won't come on stream till potentially next year. Um, And yet, there were calls for them last year from that sector that idea that, you know, do something in the budget last year and you didn't?
0: Yeah, no, it, there was calls for, yeah, for you it last did. year. And why was that? Was that a political decision not to do that? Well, it's, it's the same in every budget. There's decisions you have to make. Mm. Um, Just in the brought... middle
1: of a housing crisis with those calls yeah, but, around the cost Yeah, but we the had, had a cost, of living, crisis. We had a a cost of
0: living crisis as well. As well. We put forward 11 billion uh, billion budget to support everyone right across this country through the winter periods, through cost of living crisis. We did uh, universal measures and targeted measures to support homeowners and renters. They
8: they know that's not the number one reason why landlords are leaving. And also they know that they would have to justify to every other single worker in the country why landlords should pay less income tax than them. Okay, we'll have to leave it. We'll have to leave it at that. Um,
1: It's a conversation that will run on. My thanks to Sean, to Lynn, and to Garrett. After this break, the fastest Paralympian on the planet, Jason Smith, will be here in studio. (laughs) Irish Paralympian Jason Smith today announced his retirement from competitive running after a glittering career. The fastest man in Paralympic sports history set many records during his sprinting career, which included four Paralympic Games, the reigning Paralympic and world champion. He never lost a uh, para-athletics event throughout his entire career. And Jason, you're very welcome along to the studio uh, tonight. It's been a long day for you. Everyone's been recalling these amazing achievements, like two world records, six gold medals at the Paralympics, eight world championship titles, Um, And also we can't forget the six European crowns. I don't think anyone can keep up, but it is an incredible legacy. So people may ask, uh, given that you still hold that uh, title of being the the fastest on the planet, how difficult a decision was it to step away?
6: And actually, surprisingly, the um, decision wasn't as hard as I thought it might be, um, which probably is a sign that it was the right decision to make. Um, and I think for me, I've just look at the situation. And um, for me, I'm 35, so in sporting terms, you're, you're getting towards the end of your career. And um, something over these last number of years I've been proactive is what does life after sport look like for for me? And, um, you know, with that and uh, pursuing those avenues, the opportunity to, to get involved within Paralympics Ireland um, was there. Um, And that was something that I felt interested and passionate about is actually the ability to, I suppose a lot of my career has been, how do I push para sport forward on the track? But now how do I shift and support Paralympics Ireland in in how we as an organisation do that off the track? And you add that with the opportunity to go out at the top, how many sports people don't get that right. It's it's hard to go out at the top. So, so that was a
1: conscious decision on your part it, it's all I want to I want to go out now while I, I'm holding on to all these records.
6: I I don't know any sports person who wouldn't. And I think I mean not one thing makes the decision. But when you for me, when I weighed up all the different um pieces of the jigsaw so it it felt like it was the right time. Absolutely will I miss competing at the Paralympic Games and front of thousands of people, putting on that Irish vest, winning medals. Um, absolutely, I will miss that, but it isn't gonna be forever. It can't be forever. Um, and I think just it's, it's a, a different chapter in, in my life and career.
1: And I'm thinking about what you as a young child, as um, a kid would have thought when you were told and that you had an eye condition that yeah. would cause your sight to deteriorate. Um, how do you deal with that as a kid? How
2: how how
1: was it it's, put to you? How was it broached? And, you know, how did you manage
6: it? I think in reflection, it, it was difficult and it was difficult. Um, so in around seven or eight, I was diagnosed with the, the eye disease and it was difficult for my parents. And I feel like can understand that from being a parent um, with two little girls and my oldest is seven, which is in around that age that, my parents were told that I had an eye um, condition and I think what scares people is the unknown. What does that mean? And you you think there's somebody who could go completely blind. How does that impact their life? And how will that negatively impact their life and their career and their opportunities? And for me, I think through a lot of those years, it, it did result in doubt. It did result in, um, a hit to my confidence and probably belief in myself. But the, the incredible thing about sport um, at all levels is, is the power it has to have that impact of confidence and belief in yourself. And I think that is one of the powerful things that sport has given me.
1: And were you always very sporty, uh, Jason, or is that something you turned to, um, just something, something I suppose you could focus on and then I can see you have a highly competitive nature that you really wanted to excel at?
6: I was always involved in sport, not athletics or running. So that was actually quite late as in 15 or 16. And that was a, a school teacher that actually got me involved. But I would have done football and, and actually any sport. I was fast and um, people gave me the ball. Most of the time people couldn't catch me. So, you know, I definitely, there's no doubt I had a natural talent at running fast. But then it was everything else on top of that 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 allows you to to really develop and, and grow into to perform at that level. Um, yeah, I, I suppose when you're thinking about
1: what drives you on and what pushes you, was it to was it to compete at Paralympic level when you took up running 15, 16, and obviously, as you say, you were flying around the place before then, but um, what was it that drove you on? Was that always the end goal? Was that always, you know, something that you dreamed of um,
6: doing? I wouldn't look at the Paralympics and say that it, it was that. Um, I think for me in my career, it's always about doing something more than that. And it was about breaking down those barriers of what people seen was possible. Like it's very easy to look and think there's somebody who has five to 10% vision and all the things he can't do. But for me, it was about showing everybody I can do it if I want to do it. And the only way to do that is in your actions. And to be able to do that, for 18 years and have that level of consistency um, for me is action to what I wanted to do and to to stay focused on that.
1: And given that you are one of our most meddled athletes I mean the list of achievements goes on do you believe you get the recognition for that um Like the achievement, there's no doubt about the achievement. It's unbelievable. But do you think there is a pecking order when it comes to sport in this country?
6: Uh, Absolutely, there is. Um, And again, I'm looking at it from a a para-sport and Paralympics perspective. And if we go to any of the bigger sports, the Olympics or or other sports, if if somebody had that level of success for that length of time, um, it would be looked at differently. And... um, like again, obviously, through a lot of my career, I've I've seen where para sport has moved, and it has shifted, and it has got more recognition and awareness. And um, but I still think that has to continue to happen. Um, but what I, I
1: think it's happening there. Um, do you think there's a stigma there? Do you think there's a barrier to break down I, ultimately? I there's,
6: there still is, yeah. And I think the equity there. And I think in terms of achievement, it also takes time. Anything takes time. And, um, you know, as much as things would love to happen overnight is it takes time. And I think through the, a lot of my career, I've probably been one of those people pushing that forward from what people see on the track. So it takes those moments of success. Um, but I, I hope in my new role within Parliament Ireland that as an organisation, we can continue to increase the visibility and awareness um, around disability in sport and sport and inclusion is is a big piece of society mm. right now. So I think, you know, time is is right and good to, to really keep moving things along.
1: Um, I know that you were disappointed at not representing Ireland at both the Olympics and the Paralympics um, in London in 2012. Why was it such a hope um, to get to the Olympics? It, I, did, it, does it, did it carry a different weight for you? Um, why was that
6: really important? I think it was back to this point about breaking down barriers and bridging the gap between what people see is possible. And, and part of that, obviously the Olympics is the um, ultimate event on an athletics terms to to actually get there. Um, obviously I've made Europeans and world championships and it was four hundredths of a second um, that I was away from doing it. So it was all about what I kind of said I wanted to do is, is to really showcase that anything as possible, um, but unfortunately it was just a little bit out.
1: Yeah, were you very disappointed with that?
6: I think in, in one situation, yes, because I, I feel in reflection, I, was, I, was, I mm. was in the shape to do it, um, and it was more so in the execution of, of my race, but then the flip side of that is, it's in those moments that you learn the most about yourself, It's those moments that you progress and improve. And then I look at how I won in Tokyo just a year and a half ago. Then, are those some of those moments that you need to get to a point in Tokyo that you are prepared for the situation?
1: Well, listen, best of luck with everything. Jason, we're honoured to have you in studio tonight. Good luck in your retirement. Thank you very much. Paralympics Ireland. That is it from us. And my thanks to all our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram.